Matthew, it's actually Matthew chapter 20, but I put 1930 because that's the last verse of, of, of chapter 19. And I think it kind of, it seems like it belongs in chapter 20. But then again, the, 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 the thought threads from 19 to 20. So really, it's, this is not, it's not that it belongs in chapter 20. It's just it connects chapter 20. You know what I'm saying? So I would like to remind us with that little verses before we go on to, to chapter 20 because it threads it. Uh, it's definitely what Christ has been talking about in the last um, couple sections, um, but he's just going to develop these thoughts. And, uh, and like I titled here, um, the, the last will be first and the first will be last. Uh, the disciples, um, again, last week we talked a lot about their, um, they had these the pop culture, you know, the culture of their time, you know, the popular way of thinking. That's what means a pop culture, the popular way of thinking uh, has influenced them a lot. And they need some spiritual renewal of their, of their minds, of their brains, looking at things a lot differently, uh, looking at things in light of God's kingdom and not in the, in the light of, you know, what everyone else in the world thinks and feels and wants. Um, John, in his epistles, says the way of the world is, um, is, 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 is resistant it's against God's ways. So we need to train our minds, not think of the ways of the world, but to think a new way, a spiritual kind of way. Disciples, they're going to have a, a struggle on their hands. Already rebuked two different ways last week, and they're going to get rebuked again uh, this morning about how to renew their mind, uh, how to think differently. Um, I think the, the misconception with the disciples is they want their, their cake and eat it too. You've heard that phrase, right? You know, they want their cake and eat it too. They all kind of want to be the chief, the boss, the... The best the disciple, <laughs> not in the good sense, but in the like, look at me kind of sense. Uh, and that's kind of works against them. Another way you could phrase it is, you know, there's an economic word where, um, where there's no such thing as a free lunch. I think they want their free lunch. You know, they want, <laughs> they want to just, whoo, you know, look at me. Aren't I great? Um, but he, they don't realize there's a great cost to discipleship, a great cost Discipleship, And Jesus is going to teach him that this morning, that there really is no such thing as a free lunch. There is a cost. It doesn't just come easy. Um, so let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning, Lord. Thank you for your word. Um, I pray, God, that this would be encouraging, Lord, to us all, Lord. Um, I, I pray, God, the time we're in now, Lord, the, you know, the world we're living in, the um, love of many growing cold, as Jesus, you predicted, and, and the epistles all predict very clearly, Lord, that the, the, in the end times, it's going to be very difficult for the church, Lord. It'll be not a time of great outpouring like it was falsely believed in generations before us, Lord. But instead, it's going to be a cooling down. It's going to be just as Jesus said, like the days of Sodom and Gomorrah and like the days of Noah, Lord, where in the days of Noah, there was just continuous evil throughout the world. In the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, again, there was continuous evil. There was very few righteousness to be found, Lord. And so, Lord, I believe that's, that's what you're saying when you say these things to us. And we will look at those, obviously, when you get to them in Matthew 24 and whatnot. But 
you know, we are in the end times. And, uh, and I pray, God, that you would encourage your saints, encourage us, Lord, to think like the disciples are thinking, be challenged like the disciples are being challenged, Lord, to, to really um, learn how to serve, learn how to be proper disciples, to serve, to not think of ourselves and what we need, but to think of the gospel, think of the kingdom of heaven, big picture stuff. And how could we get involved with the big picture stuff? Uh, and no longer self-preservation, Lord, that thing that has collapsed the church, the effects of it from the last 20, 30 years, Lord. Um, I pray, God, that we would instead pull together, Lord, and not fall apart, Lord. I pray for Cornerstone, Lord. I pray for other churches in the area, Lord. I pray for the churches in Scotland, Lord, throughout that are teaching the word of God faithfully and the gospel honestly, Lord. I pray, God, that you would strengthen and empower them this morning, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Matthew 19, 30, really it's Matthew 20, but quick review. And again, I've already kind of mentioned it in my uh, preview, preview. I got like my pre-prayer preview, and then I got my after-prayer review. So this is the after-prayer review, which comes after the before-prayer preview. Okay? <laughs> I will issue out um, a little program. Like when you go to a show, they give you a program to let you know what's going on. We need one for church. Okay. Again, the review. So this is what we've already talked about in Matthew 20. So this is, we already know this stuff. We already know this stuff. Why am I saying it? It's because it's good to be reminded. But we already know this stuff. How, we ask ourselves this question. How does popular culture influence your thinking, influence my thinking, influence our thinking? It does. It does. But we need to be critical thinkers. One of the things I was, uh, like, like I was, I've been working in inductive Bible study with Leona and, and Lewis. And, and Lewis came on Wednesday and Leona didn't. And we talked about uh, when we do a certain part of our Bible study called the application. So here, take notes, Leona, because so I don't have to repeat myself on Wednesday. We basically, there's a part of it called the application where we really put it to practice today. And, and, and one of the words I use is critical. Critical thinking. Thinking really, really hard about our culture today, thinking really, really, really hard of things that we believe in, things we take for granted, things we presuppose. Those are big fancy words, which means the way our culture, the way our upbringing, our environment, everything, our, even our genetics, influences the way we think. And we need to have a renewal. And this renewal is, it's been argued that it's almost impossible. It is, because it's like, how do you change? How do you divorce your mind from the way the culture thinks? How do you divorce your mind from the way that you've been brought up in your genetics? How do you do that? And so when we do our Bible study, we have to think very, very critically, very, very hard. How do I take what we're learning here in the scriptures and apply it to my life? It's a difficult thing. But it's a thing that all disciples need to do. And, you're, and I do want to confirm the fact that it's impossible. But like we learned last week with Jesus, with man... These things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So when we do apply scriptures to our lives, expecting change, we need to be prayerful, prayerful, inviting the Holy Spirit to join along, being open to the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit moves, are you going to resist him or are you going to allow him to take over, to take charge? Okay, again, outside of the whole cultural influence, there's also the pride and when the Holy Spirit wants to move, the pride gets hurt sometimes. And sometimes the pride goes, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to change. So just shut up, Jesus. Don't want to deal with this right now. 
But we gotta stop that if we really want some real change in our lives. And disciples, I think they're encountering that just now with Jesus. He, the Spirit's moving, Jesus is speaking, things are happening, they're, they have to change the way they think. So we have to ask this question, how does popular culture, whatever by Jesus' sayings, because they were so heavily influenced by popular ideas. In verse 13 of chapter 19, we saw the disciples were, were, they rebuked the people because they brought their children, the small children, little babies, the infants, the toddlers, to Jesus for prayer. Jesus didn't stop them. He prayed for them. But the, but the disciples rebuked the people. Stop doing this. You're inconveniencing Jesus. Their thinking was based upon a popular idea of the day that children were of little or no value. And in fact, children were just a big nuisance. Okay? Jesus didn't believe that. Jesus didn't think that. In fact, he rebuked the disciples and says, no, 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 don't think that way. Bring the, the, the children. Because these children, th- this is what the universe is all about. This is what the world will influence the way we think. We saw twice how the disciples were confounded or confronted. Confounded, I don't know if I think the word must have popped up. Confounded, confronted. The kingdom of, of God. This is what everything, everything, everything's about these children. And these children are going to represent the kingdom of God to the rest of the world. These people, these children are valuable. Spiritual renewal was necessary for the disciples. Verse 23, we see again, the common belief in the disciples' days was that wealth equals favor with God. Again, there, there is some truth to the fact that, if you know, if you fall after God and, and, and you know, you're, you know, and God's your Lord, and, you know, he, he, we can expect that, that a blessed life. And, and the reason why is because God knows the right way to live life. And if you follow after God, he will show us the right way of life and we can expect a certain amount of blessing. So there, there is some truth to that. But the problem is they reverse it. And they say, so therefore, and this is a false, this is a fallacy. Therefore, if you reverse it, the fallacy of reversal, but not yet, you know, the arrow points this way, not that way. But, but the, the, the misconception is, well, then if you see a rich person, someone who's well off or really popular or really talented or really wonderful, And they must be blessed by God. So they must have favor with God. But that's not the case. We can easily imagine people in our culture today who are rich and are without God and are miserable. So that's a false, a false conclusion or false inference, if you will. So Jesus, so they're thinking if somebody's wealthy, someone's rich, then they have to be blessed by God. They have to have favor with God. But Jesus said it's hard actually for, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. This confused them and confounded them. Because if you go to the youth kids clubs and whenever you go to, to have a special prize or come get this treat, they run. Whoever's first to get there is, is the winner and they're wonderful. It's great to be the winner. It's great to be first. It's wonderful. And that's, that's, I think that's a common human misconception. But Jesus is going to turn that around and say, guess what? Many who are first will be last. And many who are last will be first. We need to be critical, real hard, think really, really hard. What is he saying by this? So here you are, that's verse 30. And this is, of course, the way they thought. It's like, but wait a second, this is so ingrained in the way they, th- they think and the way they are and who they are that it's like, well, I don't understand, Jesus. So the disciples, you know, they were confounded or confused because of the popular ideas today, spiritual renewal is necessary. And here's another cultural idea. Being first is great. You know, I mean, even young children, you go to the schools, where we start off. Let's go to now chapter 20, verse 1. He's going to illuminate this. You see, these parables that we see, they're illustrations. They're used to illuminate truths. If the truth is this, the first will be last, and the last will be first. 
you know, going against the, co- the common thought of the day that to, to, to win, to be first is to be the chief, to be boss, to, to you know, to, the, the, you know, to be first is great and to be last is to be miserable. You know, he's going to go against that kind of idea. And he's going to say here, and he's going to illustrate really wonderfully and really isn't much to say in light of this illustration because the illustration speaks so well in itself that I'm just going to pretty much read through it and make maybe a few comments. So Matthew 20, verse 1 says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. So again, he's, it's a story. So put your mind into the context of the story. So pretend, like, so in your mind, imagine a landowner with a great feel, a vineyard, okay? So picking grapes, right? And he's got workers, and he needs to pick the grapes. So put yourself in this place. It, when, you, when, when you hear this, these parallels, these illustrations, these parables, you need to imagine like you're there. And so you can really get the feeling for what he's trying to say. So when I read this, try to really put yourself in the story if you can, okay? So the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius. Okay, note this. A denarius was the usual daily wage of a laborer back then, okay? So you work, you get paid for the day. Okay, big sense. I guess the question here, which we're going to find out as we unfold the story, is what actually qualifies a daily wage? Is it eight hours of work, ten hours of work, four hours of work? And that's where the, the conflict will come in. But here, come, work, get paid. Simple, simple. So he again he agrees to pay them a denarius for the day they sent them in, for the day and sent them into his vineyard. It goes on to say about nine in the morning. He went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, "You also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right." That's interesting. Whatever is right. Again, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the right wage? Is it still a denarius? Hmm, maybe it's a quarter of a denarius, maybe it's three quarters of a denarius, because they didn't do as much work as the other ones did, because the other one's been there since six in the morning. These are lazy birds who wake, who sleep in the morning, and they show up at night and going, oh, what's going on? So come on, get to work. So they went. He went out again about noon, speaking about lazy birds, and about three in the afternoon as well, and did the same thing. So three in the afternoon, these guys did significantly less work. And then again, five in the afternoon. Meanwhile, the guys who were there since six in the morning are still working. So we're really getting a picture of what he's saying here. He went out and found still another standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Well, their answer is simple. No one's asked us to work. He came out and he looked. He goes, you go work, you go to work, you work. And they're just sitting there, maybe waiting to be picked. And so they're sitting there waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. Again, I, I joked about being lazy birds, but I think the idea here is these guys were standing all day. See, they were ready. They were ready to work. They've been standing all day, but they didn't work. If they were, I believe, if they were called upon earlier, they would have came earlier. But they didn't. And that's what he's saying here. He's like, why are you guys here hanging about? Because we want work. Basically, we've been waiting here all day for work. No one's hired us. Are you going to hire us? And he said to him, you know what? Go to my vineyard to work. They, in fact, they're probably, if it's five in the afternoon, I guarantee these guys were getting really sad. Like thinking, oh man, the day's up. There's, there's, that's us. What are we going to do? We had no work for the day. We sat here all day 
and getting zilcho out of it. This is miserable. These guys are probably really bummed out. You know what I'm saying? They're really bummed out because they're like, it's five. Nobody's going to hire us at this time of the day. The, the sun's going to go down soon. How are we going to feed our family? You see, so, so there's two different ways to look at it. It's like, well, they weren't working. But there's also the like, but they've been there all day waiting and they never were hired. And, and what are they going to do? They need the money to provide for their family. But the, but the vineyards, this guy, he's lovely. I, mean, I, I think he's lovely. He shows up and goes, come on. I know it's only about an hour or two left of daylight, but you know, come work for a wee bit. Just come work. That's what he said to him. Go work my vineyard. Next slide, please. And then when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, okay, so the foreman, the gaffer, right? The, the owner comes and says, okay, the manager, you know, come get people together. It's time for payday. Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. Now, again, why he decided to do it in this order is a bit of a mystery to me. It's almost like he wanted to see the response of other workers. The ones who came last, the ones who I hired at five, who've been waiting around all day and didn't work, pay them first and then go on and pay until you get to the first guys. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a what? A denarius? A wage for the whole day? Not a quarter of a denarius, not an eighth of a denarius, not a sixteenth of a denarius, but a whole denarius? That's not fair, is it? So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. Oh, I get it. If they get denarius, we're going to get six denarius. Yes, this guy's amazing. But each, of, but each one of them also received a denarius. Talking about ultimate disappointment. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour. One hour they worked. And you have made them equal to us? Jesus, I've been following you my whole life. I got saved when I was 12. Look at these guys. They've been walking with Jesus for six months. Why do they get blessed? Why do they get this and that? That's not fair. You know, they grumbled. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us, who have been the burden of the work and the heat of the day. So while it was very hot, <laughs> and they were very hot in these vineyards, picking these grapes and working very hard, these guys were standing around. And so it seems unfair to them. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for one denarius? Is not the reward you, that I offered you? Isn't that what I said? I said, come and work and I'll give you a denarius? Well, take your pay and go. I want to give the one who has hired last the same as I gave you. He wants to. He's merciful. He's graceful. I want to pay them the same. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Doesn't he have the right to do what he wants with his own money? Or are you, here's a key word. This is what the disciples need to learn. Are you envious? Because I am so generous. The word envious is very harsh. It's also where you get the word wicked or evil. It means full of labors, annoyances, and hardships. We've seen it before. It's defined mostly 51 times in the scriptures as evil. And by scriptures, it means the New Testament because it's a Greek word. So it appears 51 times in the New Testament as evil, 10 times as wicked, 6 times as wicked, 1, and also implies evil things. So then he ends with the same statement. So the last will be first and the first will be last. What does that mean? Does that mean we just were lazy? 
with our Christianity. We're lazy with our discipleship because, hey, we'll all get paid the same anyways in the end. That's not what he's saying at all. Again, I think it's very well implied that these other guys, they weren't lazy. They were there all day ready to go. They were all there all day ready to go. But still, God was graceful, merciful when, when they were awakened, when they were called. When they were called, they responded. They didn't give, lose heart. They didn't lose faith. Next slide. And then here, he does, drops this beautiful bomb. Okay, he's rebuking the disciples, and he's going to continue to rebuke them. But here, he drops this beautiful bomb. And really, this is the center of discipleship. This is the center of the disciples' life, the cross. And here, this is the third time he predicts his death. These guys are all, well, we'll see what they're going to do in a second. But let's just read this. Now, when Jesus was going to Jerusalem, again, I mentioned it last week, he's on the road to Jerusalem now, okay? And on the way, he took the 12th aside, and he said to them, we're, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life. What the disciples thought when they heard this, I don't know, because they did struggle with these things. Even after he was crucified and he lay in the grave, they were confused. They couldn't understand this being raised to life on the third day. I mean, this is, this is madness. But he's, he's, he didn't just predict it once, and it happened to be a coincidence or a fluke. He didn't predict it twice, and it became a super coincidence or a super fluke. He predicted three times. He wanted to make it very clear this is necessary. This is what's got to happen. Our discipleship is based upon the cross. All these, first will be last, last will be first. You know what? It's about the cross. It's about the cross. None of us can really work a good full day of labor and get our right wages spiritually. We need Jesus Christ. We need Jesus Christ in order to have any reward in heaven. In order to have any place in heaven, we need Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter how hard you work. If you're going to work really hard, work to Jesus. Work because you love Jesus. Not because you're looking for a pat on the back. Not because you're looking to um, be the chief, to sit on the left side of Christ or on the right side of Christ. You want, you, not because you want to have an important authority position. Work unto Jesus Christ because this Work as hard as you can because he deserves it. He's worth it. You know, there's so many distractions in our life that will keep us away from serving God with our whole heart, whole mind. But this verse right here, these three verses, 17, 18, 19, are so wonderful. This is the reason why we should live our lives for Jesus, work as hard as we can for Jesus, like these vineyard workers, is because it's worth it. He died for our sins. He willingly went to the cross. He was willingly, consciously aware of the fact that he was going to die on the cross for our sins. So what can a person say? Look at this. Jesus, the one who's miraculously healing people, the one who we love, our beloved dear Jesus who just loves us and cares for us. And he's just, I mean, these guys are so fired up to be a disciple of Christ. What are they going to say when they hear this? He's going to die. Guys, see Jerusalem up ahead? I'm going there to die. What would you say if Jesus told you this? Certainly, I hope it wouldn't be anything like this. Next slide. Certainly not anything like this. So then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. Listen, Jesus, come here. I understand this whole dying business, but you know what? Let's get to some serious business here, guys. Okay, serious business. What about my boys? What are they going to get out of it? What? 
It doesn't get it. They don't get it yet. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant one of these two of my sons. Grant one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and furthermore, the other sit on your left. What is she looking for? She's looking for a position for her boys. I want my boys to have authority. They just don't get it. They just don't get it. It's not about authority. It's not about who's the boss. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. It's about Christ. Do you love him? Serve him with your whole heart, your whole mind. So give him everything. It's not about having a position, being the pastor, being the bishop, being the the Pope, and it's not anything about authority or power or control or cloud. It's about Jesus. He's the Lord. And so what's he say to her? You don't know what you're asking. <laughs> you really don't know what you're asking, do you? Okay, Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup? Now, here's not talking to the mom. He's talking to the boys. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? This word cup, it metaphorically speaks of one's lot in life or experience, Okay whether they be joyous or adverse. Divine appointments, okay, divine appointments, what God's doing with you in your life, whether favorable or unfavorable. They're likened to a cup, which God presents one. Here's your cup to drink. So of prosperity and of adversity. Again, another cultural misunderstanding is that God's lot for his people is always favorable. God loves you, he's going to just pat you on the back all day long and spank you on the backside. Go ahead, have fun, reap goodness. But God's cup for Jesus was the cross. And he's going here, can say it's not just for him, it's also for his disciples. He goes on to say, you will indeed drink from my cup. And there's two ways we can interpret this. But again, you know, the two ways we can interpret it is this. First of all, Jesus is clearly talking about his, his, his suffering as a timely death. We know that because he just spoke of it. And this is his cup. But there's two ways interpreting this cup for the disciples. Number one, that they will suffer as he will suffer. And they did, actually, by the way. All the disciples suffered. All the disciples were martyred and tortured. And they, they suffered. They did. Probably worse than Jesus. Because Jesus' death was, was, was fairly quick, actually, compared to what the disciples had to suffer. And he's like, yeah, guys, you don't know what you're asking for but you're going to get my cup. So this is one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is, is this might be an indication, like an indicator, a pointer to the communion and the significance of communion. You know, the consumed blood of Christ. As we take the communion, we take Jesus and the blood. So there's a beautiful, the, his cup is offered to us in that the work that he did on the cross is offered to us as a gift that's free. But also we may take the cup as it's more commonly used as a metaphor of what one's lot, divine appointment, both favorable and unfavorable, both prosperity and of adversity, you know? So God does bless his people, but sometimes his cup could be a bit hard. Like the cup, I believe Jesus is speaking of here. So he goes on to, to say, but guys, bottom line is this. These places you speak of, left and right hand of, you know, these authority position places, they, they do exist, I guess. But it's not, it's for God to figure out. It's for God to appoint these things. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Last slide. Well, almost last slide. But two more. So again, Christianity ought not be a consumer sport. 
Okay, the the problem I've seen in my experience is, is is was what happened to the church in, in the eighties. In the eighties in America and Britain, it was just we were just so fat, so consumed with fast food and technology and fun and play and the church was awesome and big, exciting. The music was good and the buildings were big and the seats were cushy. Christianity in the 80s is a nightmare. Now, bear in mind, I did get saved through all this and that's kind of cool, but it produced such a consumeristic mentality. And, and, and I, I know good Bible-leading pastors were probably trying their best to to, to, to well, let people become as comfortable as they can to tell them it's not all about this. Life isn't all about being cushy and comfortable. Being a disciple is not about being cushy and comfortable. It's about going outside yourself and serving others. It's about going outside yourself and dying to yourself for the cross. And many just didn't get it because they were interested in the, in the way of the 80s. Very comfortable, very cushy. You know, the economy was well. People had good jobs. They got paid in abundance. They had lots of toys. In their spiritual life, I kind of believe resembled it. I think we are just now in the 21st century, in 2014 going on 2015, I think we're seeing that the result is now that things are getting tough, the economy's a little bit more tight. You know, um, the church... You know, we're getting a bit thin, a bit skinny. Those who remain are those who are generally get it. They're faithful. They're like, yeah, being, being a Christian is not about being, you know, cozy. It's about, it's hard work. Being a disciple is a great cost. And so it's not a consumer sport. It's a lifestyle of devotion, of sacrifice. So in verse 24, Jesus says, when the ten heard about this, they were indignant were the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers, the Gentiles, lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority. We've already talked about this in the past. He's already dealt with this issue before. And he goes, you guys know, the Gentiles are all about being the bosses and being the chiefs and the lords and the rulers. And, and they lord over people. They love that. They get the excitement over it. And high officials, they exercise their authority over people. They, get, they love it. That's what they live for. They get excitement over it. But disciples aren't supposed to be that way. And then what you would expect. Do you want to be great? You must be the servant of other disciples. And we already talked about this. Great disciples, great children of God, are servants of other children of God. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Strong word here. Are you willing to give up to give it all to just lose your rights for the benefit of another servant? Are you willing to give up your rights as a free person to serve and honor and respect and give 110% of your life to other disciples? Well, that's what being great is all about. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you, you want to be great, and hey, you know what? It's good to be great. But to be a great disciple, you do something a lot different. And again, that's what Jesus did. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served. He didn't come saying, I'm the Messiah. Get over here and make me some food. Come over here and rub my feet. My sores, my back sore, come rub it. Come on, serve me, guys. Instead of doing that, he's a Messiah. He had the right to do that if he wanted to, if you think about it logically. But he didn't. But again, think about what he's been doing. 
He's traveling, he's walking, he's tired, he's going. People are following him, he's healing them. The children come, he's praying for them. He doesn't stop. He doesn't stop. Just the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Not only did he serve nine to five, five days out of the seven, he is obvious as far as application is concerned, thinking very critically about what we ought to do. The question appears, how are we serving today? How is our service? What's the quality of our service today? Let's end with this last slide. Summary. Thinking very hard here. Putting the pieces. There's a big puzzle piece. It's like a spirit-shaped puzzle piece in our way of thinking that needs to be filled, that needs to be changed. And the reality is, stop thinking like the world thinks. We just got to stop doing it. We need to think in a different kind of way. We need to learn, change, transform our mind. And we need the help of the Holy Spirit. So we need to invite him. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Jesus could not have made himself more clear. Being a disciple is all about serving others, not serving the self. So the question to, to take take charge over our minds and the way we think. So spiritual renewal, that's what we call it, spiritual renewal, because the spirit needs to be a part of it. He needs to renew it. It's not fleshly renewal. It's not renewal from working really hard and thinking really hard. It's spiritual renewal, which means it needs to happen from the spirit of living God. And he needs to quicken us. Spiritual renewal must take place in the way the disciples, and that includes you and I, by the way. I'm not just talking about story about these historical people. I'm talking about disciples yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Disciples need to change the way they think in order to see things correctly. Don't be envious of others or other disciples. Remember that we all serve the same master who treats us all fairly. Again, the parable of the sower is all about looking at what others are getting. That's not fair. Just shut up and serve God. Okay? He treats you all, he'll treat, he treats us fairly. God's not unfair. God's good. He's not a wicked Lord. He's a good Lord. So we don't need to worry about what other people are doing and what other people, how they're being blessed. We need to just look at ourselves and say, am I doing what I need? And trust that God will reward us fairly. Jesus himself did not come to be served, but to serve. Great disciples resemble their Lord closely. They too do not look to be served, to consume, but to serve. This is substance for revival. You want revival? We want revival. We talk about revival as Christians. This is revival. It starts with this person right here, sitting in this chair right here. That's how it starts. The way we think. But now he's a great operate, the way we function, the way we behave.